Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and it really is a great thrill for me to see so many of you in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium this evening. Uh, you may have noticed uh, there's a lot going on, a lot of trains outside. We're not quite finished, but on Friday we will open a spectacular new exhibition, which will become a holiday feature here. We uh, were lucky enough to acquire over the summer the world's greatest collection of trains and toys, and uh, this is the tip of the iceberg, but I know you'll want to return with your children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews, and young friends on uh, many, many occasions. That show will be up through President's Weekend. Um, we are opening tonight a, uh, another exhibition upstairs, um, Annie Leibovitz's Pilgrimage, and I know you're going to want to return for that also. It's a, a very unusual show of Annie Leibovitz's photographs. Um, these ones are not, uh, not the usual Leibovitz photographs, but American icons of American history and the American experience, which were particularly inspired her. Um, tonight's program, The Forgotten Dis Depression of 1921, is a part of our Bernard and Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, and as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to invite uh, so many terrific historians and writers to this auditorium. I also want to thank and recognize uh, some of our board members in attendance this evening, our board vice chair, Richard Reese, Ira Unschuld, and our speaker this evening, James Grant. And I want to thank them all for all that they do on behalf of this great institution. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We will ask audience members to line up in front of two standing microphones to my right and to my left. We do this so that everyone here can hear your question uh, as well as those who listen to these programs uh, via recorded pop podcasts. Following the program, please do join us for a book signing with tonight's speaker whose book is available in our bookshop for purchase. We are so very pleased to welcome James Grant back to the New York Historical Society. Mr. Grant is the founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, a twice-monthly journal of the investment markets. He began his career in journalism in 1972 at the Baltimore Sun. He joined the staff of Barron's in 1975, where he originated the Current Yield column. He's the author of numerous books on finance and financial history, and his writing has also appeared in various periodicals, including the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, and Foreign Affairs. His most recent book is The Forgotten Depression, 1921. Before we begin, I'd like to, as always, ask you to please make sure that anything that makes a noise like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please join me in welcoming James Grant to the stage. Well, Louise, I thank you. I thank the New York Historical Society, this grand central station of historical museums. And I thank Bernard Schwartz. So my book and I are delighted to be here. I can speak for the book. Uh, the book is a work of history in length just over the decent minimum of 200 pages. That is the uh, authorial Mendoza line. Um, uh, the title says that the Depression of 1920-21 is forgotten. I hope that the next edition will read a little bit more affirmatively, uh, previously forgotten. 
but be that as it may, it is an episode that I do hope you will remember. I wrote this uh, because in 2008, that year of sorrows, uh, the Great Depression of the 1930s seemed to monopolize the market and economic historical analogy. The policymakers, not least the chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, constantly invoked the 1930s with reference to the crisis of the mangled mortgages and combusting banks. No intervention was too great to forestall a repeat of that calamity, said he. Uh, thus the drive to stimulate, to print money and to spend it and to push bank deposit rates, as you might have noticed, to zero before tax. Uh, seven years later, uh, we are still being stimulated. Uh, the Depression of 1920 and 21 uh, went unmentioned. As far as I know, not a single senior policymaker chose to invoke it on the other side of the stimulus argument. A regrettable admission, I thought. Uh, the business cycle downturn of the early 1920s was the last governmentally unmedicated uh, slump in American history. In response to plunging employment, plunging prices and profits, the successive administrations of Woodrow Wilson and Warren G. Harding seemed to uh, do nothing, actually. Nothing, at least, in the way of macroeconomic intervention. Congress balanced the budget, began to pay down the wartime debt, and the still wet behind the ears Federal Reserve Board raised, not lowered interest rates. The Fed then was, was new to error, it has had subsequently much greater, more extensive experience with error. <laughs> uh, prices were allowed to fall, wages too. Nobody was in charge, save Adam Smith's invisible hand. Yet 18 months after it started, uh, the Depression ended, after which the 20s proverbially roared. Now, you may say, many have said, uh, that 1921 was a long time ago, and so it was. Then again, so is 1931. And you may observe that the world has changed since 1921, as indeed it has. Then again, uh, there have been changes since 1931. All I ask is something like intellectual parity of these historical relevance between the two very different cyclical events. So this is contentious and politically charged business, I know, and I am not unaware that I am on the Upper West Side. Um, so I want to be careful to separate the past from the present and history from prescription. We can draw, delve a little, if you like, into the applicability of the historical facts to present-day policy during the Q&A, but let us begin with the facts uh, such as we can know them. Uh, they say that the past is a foreign country. Uh, the economic and financial past can seem uh, especially alien. Um, the very notion, by the way, of a macroeconomy was, uh, was unhatched in the early 20s. The word really was not, uh, uh, was not uh, around, um, nor were many historic, uh, economic data. Uh, it was a very different world indeed. So the Great War ended on November 11th, 1918. That is, the shooting stopped on that famous day. Uh, the bills kept rolling in. The belligerent nations had fought the war on the cuff. They spent and they borrowed and they taxed, though not so much as they spent. And they commandeered and they printed money too, just as we do today, though they actually had to round up the paper and the ink and the engravers 
uh, we have the iPhone. Wars are inherently inflationary. The aftermath of war, of, of major war, was then believed, was known to be deflationary. Deflationary meaning hard times and falling prices and falling wages. What had followed the Napoleonic Wars and America's Civil War were just that, hard times and falling prices and wages. Not this time, though. This time was different, it seemed. In 1919, the oft-predicted uh, post-war depression failed to show up. It was, uh, on the contrary, things were rather boomy. It was an inflationary boom uh, set aloft by easy money and subsidized interest rates. Um, uh, the Federal Reserve System had been conscripted uh, into the service of the Treasury during the war. It had suppressed interest rates and facilitated the creation of credit backed by newly issued war bonds. Uh, it was in the same position in World War II. Um, still, it was uh, a surprising unscripted development, this post-war inflationary boom. Maybe it would last, people reasoned. Expecting that it would, uh, they made their adjustments. Farmers planted fence post to fence post, taking advantage of still sky-high commodity prices. And they bought land uh, with mortgage debt. And they borrowed to uh, buy newfangled tractors, which then were only beginning to seriously displace horsepower on the farm. Uh, bankers uh, felt a, and fed a booming demand for credit. Uh, Citicorp, then called National Citibank, but even then accident-prone, the <laughs> National Citibank uh, lent, uh, not wisely but too well, in Cuba against the uh, evanescent collateral of record-high sugar crops. Uh, General Motors built itself a $20 million headquarters building uh, the biggest such structure of its kind in the world, with 30, 30 acres of office space. Uh, only one inhabitant of those 30 acres was a man named Billy Durant. He was the founder of General Motors and uh, the company's uh, greatest cheerleader and one of its major sh stockholders. Uh, he, too, had had recourse to borrowed money. With these loans, he purchased more shares of the rising GM Common. Uh, and in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, two war veterans um, uh, thought they saw a pretty cloudless commercial sky. Their names were Eddie Jacobson and uh, Harry S. Truman. And uh, Truman and Jacobson opened a menswear store, uh, financed uh, in good measure with, with bank credit. Harry Truman had sold the farm, married Bess. They borrowed and they built, and they waited for the boys from Battery, Battery D, I think, uh, to come in and, and, and buy collars and ties and suits. So the world, expecting a depression, uh, was happily um, uh, disappointed. And, and, and it organized, reorganized its expectations and its finances to accommodate uh, what now dawned, which is a great inflationary boom. Now, this particular music uh, stopped in the spring of 1920. And it stopped first in Tokyo, specifically on the, on the silk market in Tokyo. Um, out of the blue, for no evident reason, silk prices collapsed. Um, that, as it were, the flapping of those butterfly wings 
had ramifications the world over. There was a succession of breaks in commodity prices. Um, in 1929, there was a thunderclap of a stock market break. Nothing like that exactly in the spring of 1920. Rather, a serial breakdown in the prices of things at wholesale and in the commodities futures markets. Um, uh, the distress was not evident initially. It was, certainly was not universal initially. Um, but if you were in the wrong place at the wrong time, you felt it very quickly. On April 16th, 1920, the price of a pound of middling grade cotton in New York fetched uh, 43 cents. 43 cents a pound. Um, by uh, September, um, it was 30 cents. And uh, in November, 20 cents. And 12 cents in March of 1921. Um, it didn't pay to grow it. Uh, uh, the cotton planters were at wit's end. They, they, they likened that period to uh, the terrible aftermath of the Civil War. Um, so they had, in 1919, there had been a kind of a buyer's panic, um, as happens during inflations. You expect things to be higher in price tomorrow, therefore you buy today. Uh, there seemed as if uh, the world was running out of everything. In 1920, there uh, came a seller's panic. Uh, the authors of a congressional post-mortem of the Depression in agriculture studied records of price movements uh, since 1800, and they concluded that the debacle of 1920-21 was, quote, without parallel. Um, uh, there was, um, uh, one can recite some figures, and I will do so, to show that uh, um, the distress was, was, uh, was felt in, in the industrial sphere as well. Um, uh, corporate profits took a great big hit. Um, uh, employment uh, was not then measured. You, you didn't know what the unemployment rate because nobody did the surveys, but it was almost certainly in the double digits. Um, uh, industrial production was down from peak to trough about 30% or more. Commodity prices on average uh, from peak to trough fell more than 40%. And... Uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average from top to bottom was down 45%. Um, it was, uh, well, it was the kind of thing that uh, today uh, would, uh, would marshal all federal resources to uh, uh, ameliorate the distress and to set us on the way to recovery. Um, let me uh, set the scene a little bit about how America looked and how it felt about itself at the, uh, at the uh, when things began to go wrong in 1920. Um, uh, there had been a red scare. There had been race riots. Uh, inflations almost always seemed to stir up social animosity. Uh, this was a time of, of a heavily unionized labor force. And uh, strike activity uh, set records. And I think those records have not yet been eclipsed. Um, there was... Uh, uh, yes, the World Series of 1919 looks suspicious, and the grand jury in 1920 began hearing evidence into possible gambling and fixing of the outcomes of that series. And ladies and gentlemen, I've got to tell you that these terrible things, the race riots, the, um, the Red Scare, they, they blew up the front porch of the Attorney General of the United States to the Reds, or them, uh, general strike in Seattle. All of this took place in the backdrop of prohibition. Now, can you imagine going through that sober 
<laughs> and uh, not so far in the background was the, uh, was the great flu pandemic of 1918-1919, uh, more lethal even than the Great War. Um, this was an era not to be confused with the era of good feelings. Um, so um, what, did, uh, what did the authorities do and why did those authorities do it? Um, well, Woodrow Wilson was in office in uh, 1920. Uh, it was an election year, but he was finishing out his, his second term. Uh, Wilson had taken to the road, to the rails, as you know, to sell his League of Nations. And um, he was stricken and uh, uh, incapacitated, and so immediately was his administration. Now, Wilson was no shrinking violet with respect to government intervention. He had instituted a kind of war socialism in America during 1917, 1918. Railroads were nationalized, uh, uh, coal prices fixed, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, it was kind of an accidental laissez-faire that settled over the Wilson regime after his stroke. So what Wilson did was essentially nothing, and I'm not sure what he could have done, so slow were economic data to present themselves in that day. Um, the Republicans met uh, in the summer of 1920 to uh, nominate their candidate for the presidency and to hammer out a program uh, uh, for governance. And uh, they never actually did mention the United States economy. They did use the word economy, but only with respect to the needful economy in government. It's curious that uh, uh, in the face of what was becoming a very serious disturbance in American farming and finance and commerce, in the face of this, the challenging party uh, did not choose to uh, exploit it. Uh, partly this was ideological, partly it was out of ignorance. In any case, uh, the American governing establishment more or less sat on its hands in the face of these deepening symptoms of a very clear distress. Um, there was a Federal Reserve, as I mentioned, and um, um, the Federal Reserve um, uh, was in charge of, I don't know, was in charge of uh, I guess interest rates and things, and uh, it, um, uh, it had at its head a man named Benjamin Strong. Benjamin Strong was uh, was kind of the um, uh, was kind of the Janet Yellen or the Ben Bernanke of his day. His official title was the governor of the Central Federal Reserve Bank of New York, uh, but he was effectively the head of the entire shooting match. And in 1919, before the deflationary storms broke, Benjamin Strong wrote a remarkably prescient letter to an economics uh, professor of his acquaintance, and uh, ran 20 pages. Uh, and in this letter, uh, Strong laid out his vision of the American financial future, seeing as he did the inflationary boom in progress. Now, uh, I should say in preface that uh, Benjamin Strong was by no means a cruel man. He seemed, uh, uh, seemed uh, empathetic enough. He was a family man. Um, he uh, had not been to college, but very few of the Federal Reserve officials had. He seemed intelligent. He was well-read. He was a great fan of the Victorian um, uh, critic and uh, economics uh, journalist, Walter Badgett. Um, so, but here, here, is what, um, here is how uh, the Janet Yellen of that day saw the financial future from the year 1919. He said, uh, 
he talked about a somewhat changed policy in monetary affairs um, that would, re, uh, would require a, a quote, very, very, a very considerable liquidation of our banking position. Um, which is a kind of a nice way of saying that no one would get many loans. Uh, this changed policy, this somewhat changed policy of his, turned out to be rather draconian. And here is how he anticipated his own draconian policy. He said that, uh, yes, they would pull the rug out from under the leveraged, meaning encumbered, American enterprise. I also believe, however, he went on, quote, that this must be accompanied by some rather serious losses because our increased prices have occurred in a country enjoying exceptional prosperity in which merchants and manufacturers have unfortunately maintained too large stocks of goods as compared with their foreign competitors. I believe that this period will be accompanied by a considerable degree of unemployment, but not for very long, and that after a year or two, a year or two of discomfort, embarrassment, some losses, some disorders caused by unemployment, we will emerge with an almost invincible banking position, with prices more nearly at competitive levels with other nations. It's a pretty, uh, seemingly a, a pretty, uh, uh, well, it's quite a display of sang-froid on the part of the man who was in charge of uh, seemingly uh, keeping things on even keel. Uh, in our day, uh, we insist that if there is an economic adjustment to be made, that adjustment ought to come through the workings of interest rates and exchange rates and asset prices. Um, in that day, in Benjamin Strong's day, the value of money was fixed. It was defined in America as a weight of gold, and everything had to adjust to that fixed standard of value. A very, very different way of organizing financial affairs. But that was Strong's reading of the future, and he turned out to be exactly right so far as the disturbances and the distress and the bankruptcies and the suffering, as well as the emergence into a state of very competitive um, enterprise. Um, uh, interest rates. Now, today we are preoccupied by the lack of them. I, as Louise mentioned, I have a business called Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Ladies and gentlemen, there's nothing to see. <laughs> so um, um, it's called in the, uh, in the journal a business model issue. Uh, so I take great interest in, in what interest rates were doing then. And uh, what the Fed did in the face of collapsing commodity prices uh, was to raise its interest rate, called the discount rate, uh, from 5% to 6%, and then at length to 7% in the face of commodity prices falling by more than 40% over the course of about nine months. It was an asphyxiating policy. Now, um, this all might sound a little bit recondite, but I can't explain. Now, the, uh, uh, the priestcraft of economics talks about real interest rates, meaning interest rates adjusted for changes in the level of prices. Um, but to any who listen to WINS, we can reduce this to the real feel temperature. So, uh, so the real feel of a 7% interest rate when commodity prices are collapsing is an effective rate of interest much higher than 7 And uh, scholars who have looked at this reckon that the real feel interest rate in 1921 was on the order of the high teens. So just imagine it. You are Harry Truman, Eddie Jacobson in Kansas City. You have laid an inventory. You have borrowed against the value of this inventory. And suddenly, the inventory is plummeting in value. 
You are an encumbered farmer. You have borrowed to buy more land. The mortgage payments are due and your crop prices are collapsing. You are Billy Durant. You have levered yourself to the point of embarrassment as your bankers at JP Morgan remind you when they can get through to you on the phone. You have borrowed to the point of embarrassment. The stock price is falling and you are about to be turned out of the headquarters building that bears your name, fired and broke. Now, there is um, a slight scholarly disagreement about uh, the severity of this particular cyclical episode. There is a, a school of thought, and very well-regarded economists hold to it, uh, that the so-called depression of 1920-21 was a kind of a cyclical perturbation uh, a severe recession, but uh, really a bump in the road of American prosperity. And they cite chapter and statistical verse, and it's all very impressive. Except, ladies and gentlemen, as you will see when you read this book, it won't take you very long at all. You can see that I happen to have uh, discovered, in, uh, through scholarly methods, I have discovered the trump card uh, of evidence that happens to be outside the realm of econometrics. And that is the lyrics to the song um, Ain't We Got Fun, the hit tune of 1921, uh, which includes such mordant, dark lyrics as the rich get richer and the poor get children. <laughs> yeah. Second first children. Uh, so I submit to you doubters about the severity of this that, uh, uh, that they don't write songs about recessions. That's my... That's my uh, um, uh, so what else can I tell you about this uh, fascinating episode? I will, oh, yes, the, um, uh, Benjamin Strong did mention in his, in his way that there would be human suffering, and indeed there was. But I, wanna, I want to share with you some of the attitudes on the part of Americans, both high-born and low, both rich and poor, on the topic of unemployment and suffering in the cause of uh, a laissez-faire recovery from a depression. Because this is, this is very much in the, in this, in the, the heart of the storyline. How, how did society deal with um, what we might call an economic catastrophe? How did it deal? So there was um, um, uh, Herbert Hoover was the chairman of, uh, was the head of the Department of Commerce throughout the 1920s. He had been Harding's Secretary of Commerce. Um, and... Uh, Hoover was uh, a man who could do anything except sit still, and he was the chairman. He was the you know, head of the Commerce Department, but he was also the, uh, the head of every other department in a part-time way. And what Hoover did was to organize a great statistical project into the nature of the prosperity of the 20s, and, uh, and starting with the Depression that preceded that wild and woolly prosperity. So the book was called, these volumes were called, uh, let's see, uh, Recent Changes in uh, American Economics, or Recent Changes. And here is what this postmortem said about the, uh, about the uh, uses of adversity. This came out in 1929, as luck would have it. Misfortune, ventured a Columbia University sociologist writing for Hoover, misfortune is not always to be appraised at face value. It drags down one person to ruin and despair. It serves another as a whetstone to point ambition and sharpen latent powers. Unemployment, then, is sometimes good, generally bad, and is frequently disastrous beyond repair for those concerned. Close quote. 
Now, by averring that unemployment might be good, or even sometimes good, this man Rice was not going off half-cocked. He had a testimonial to that effect from none other than the HR director of the American Rolling Mill in Middletown, Ohio. Uh, responding to a government questionnaire towards the end of the Depression, uh, this man, this HR director, extolled the character-building dimensions of joblessness. He said, uh, within our experience, said the man from American Rolling Mill, there are no specific outstanding cases of a disaster as the result of unemployment, nor can we say that this individual or that was particularly benefited, but our general impression, gained through rather close observation, is that the moral fiber of our community was strengthened during the past 15 months. It's cheering. Now, other respondents uh, hewing to the view that unemployment was generally bad, or even worse than generally bad, noted that uh, jobless people are badly dressed. They, uh, they uh, uh, lived without amenities. They sent their school-aged children out to work or to live away from home in foster dwellings. And if they were able to keep their homes, they were often not able to heat them. Unemployment is deadly in its effects, attested the personnel director of the Hammer Mill Paper Company in Erie, Pennsylvania. It breaks down morale, destroys courage, confidence, and ambition, and finally produces poverty, than which there is no greater evil. Now, they talked also to individual Americans, and here is the testimony of a man named David Mitchell, who was a Western coal miner. He lined up uh, with the hammer mill man rather than with the one from American Rolling Mill on this question of whether unemployment was good for you. Here is David Mitchell, the coal miner, talking about... Uh, what it was like to be on the receiving end of this cycle. A working man, Mitchell related, has sort of a treadmill existence. The treadmill sets on the edge of a cliff, and you work for a while, you pay your debts, unemployment comes, back you go into debt, each time a little farther. When work comes again, it finds one a little weaker, and the battle against the mill is not as successful as before. Your creditors become alarmed, possibly a garnishment of your next earnings. The mill has got you over the cliff. Um, so there was, there was no safety net. There was, the federal government was, uh, was uh, uh, rather engorged from the war, but still by our standards, it was a case of almost Lockean, minimalist government. Um, and the agenda, both parties agreed, was to reduce the federal establishment through a balanced budget, through the reduction of debt, and to get through this period of inflation, which was being mended uh, by a deflationary depression. That was the agenda. Um, so the political response was, as I say, was, uh, uh, was passivity, um, although not entirely. Uh, in came Harding in March of 1921, and with him came Andrew W. Mellon, one of America's foremost financiers and industrialists. Uh, uh, many presidents served under Mellon when he was Secretary of the Treasury. Harding was the first. And, uh, and Mellon uh, came in with a fixed view that less government is better and that lower interest rates were better than higher and that less debt was better than more. And he, uh, effect, had a, a strategy of, of growth through reduction, uh, shrink tax rates, interest rates, and public spending, he urged. Um, and he set about to affect these things. He was... Uh, as Secretary of the Treasury then, he was an ex officio member of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, and Mellon used his influence on the board to, uh, to press 
uh, for reduction interest rates, something that other people had been doing as well. Um, and he succeeded, and the stock market took notice, and it rather liked it, although stock prices kept falling uh, for six months after Mellon acceded to the office of the Secretary of Treasury. Um, uh, the story of this depression is, is, is one of uh, actions not taken. Uh, if one were to write a story of the 1930s, it would be full of, of uh, political Strulman drong. It would be full of, of, uh, of daring invention of policy, of, 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 the, of the arrival of the ideas of Lord Keynes, of the bright young men from Columbia trooping to Washington to organize the New Deal. Nothing like that here. Uh, uh, the story is, is one of the silent workings, or not so silent to listen to the coal miner David Mitchell, but the workings of the, the disinterested and unseen price mechanism. Um, how this worked in practice, uh, we can see by listening to the, uh, the president of the DuPont Company talk about the aftermath of their travails. The DuPont Company, as you can imagine, was sitting pretty during the war. Uh, one can't begin to uh, uh, describe the demand for gunpowder in the Great War. It was uh, seemingly limitless, and the DuPont Company had uh, thereby thrived. Um, then came the peace and the readjustment. And critical to the story of this 1921 affair is the word adjustment, is the process of adjustment, is the shaking off of circumstances that no longer pertain and preparing for a new set of circumstances without the intercession of the authorities. It's a story of adjustment. And um, here is how the DuPont Company, even then a major American industrial enterprise, here is how it was forced to adjust. And here's what it looked like to be in the DuPont Company. So between 1920 and 21, here are the vital signs of this important corporation. Earnings per share, the DuPont Company, $17 a share in 1920, $2.35 in 1921. From $17 to $2.35. Revenues, the top line of the business, $94 million in 1920, $55 million in 1921. Inventories marked at $52 million in 1920, $25 million in 1921. Headcount, down by half. Uh, bank debt, eliminated. Uh, a terrible, a terrible adjustment, but one the company made. It had no choice, and it made it. And here is the, the president, Irene DuPont, talking to his shareholders in a stockholder's letter uh, to tell him, you know, so, like, what is going on? And like all of us, in or out of the business of Wall Street, uh, we are all presented with this question. Is this a new world, or is it merely the, the cycling of, of, of familiar excesses to, uh, in the way of, of all, certainly of all financial things? We go from extremes, we go from undervalued to overvalued. It happens cycle in and cycle out. So is it a new world, is it a so-called new normal, or is it just the recurrence of familiar patterns? And here is what this very wise man Irene DuPont said, he said, uh, you can't answer the question, he said, uh, um, uh, but 
The writer believes, he said, the writer believes immediate cause of the low volume of business was the endeavor in latter part of 1920 and during 1921 on the part of those engaged in industry uh, to liquidate inventories. Your company is probably a fair example of average conditions. Of raw materials used in products sold during the first eight months of 1921, approximately one half came out of storage and one half was purchased. This means that those who sold to the DuPont company suffered a reduction of 50% in volume of materials needed by this company for its already reduced operations. This condition must cease when inventories are exhausted. Well, that's what happened. The inventory cycle turned, and people had to restock, and that restocking was one of the reasons that, uh, that uh, business affairs turned up so markedly in 1921. Uh, but... Um, you know, the, the, what had happened was, uh, was, uh, was uh, really something. But what happened next, the, the recovery, was, uh, was also very impressive indeed. Uh, one thing was a relatively strong showing of the American banking system. No bank of consequence failed in the spite of, of these uh, uh, really very difficult overall conditions. Not one major bank. Some came close, as you'll see in these pages, but... Uh, not one did, thanks in part, to be sure, uh, for the accommodation offered by the Federal Reserve to, in its discount window. You could present collateral to the Fed, and you could borrow through a bank, and you could uh, um, thereby protect yourself against a run. So that was a new thing that, uh, that helped the banking system. But the banking system was, was inherently much sounder than it later became. And one reason was that the stockholders of a bank in those days were themselves liable for a capital call in the event their institution, in which they held a fractional interest in, in, in the event that their institution became impaired or insolvent. The court would say, all right, stockholders, uh, if you read the fine print, you realize that you must stump up $5 a share, $2, whatever it was. There was an additional paid-in capital that, 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 was, that, was, that was on call. There was a paid-in capital and that contingent capital. If a bank got into trouble, the stockholders had to pay up. So naturally, I think, Stockholders paid closer attention to the management of the institutions in which they invested. So the, the, the relatively strong showing of American banking was, was one positive feature of the situation. And uh, what distinguished the subsequent recovery, as Irene DuPont indicated or suggested, uh, was the fabulous up-tempo pace of things. Uh, from 1921 to 1922, industrial production jumped by 26%. Residential construction by 58%. Manufacturing employment increased uh, to 9 million from 8.2 million. And real income per capita uh, was up to uh, $553 from 522. Um, it was, uh, there were labor shortages in Detroit by the end of 1921. Now, let me give you, uh, stock market enthusiasts, a sense of what the bottom of a bear market looks like without governmental medication. Here is uh, stocks uh, uh, fell, uh, peaked in uh, fall of 1919. They fell through August of 1921. Uh, the Dow Jones Rail Index went back to the lows of 1898. Um, industrial uh, stocks plunged as well. Um, and it didn't matter whether the company had had a good depression, as the Frank W. Woolworth Company had had, or whether it had a, 
a tumultuous and profitless depression. Um, stocks were treated more or less roughly, um, regardless. The F.W. Woolworth Company, which had had a terrific showing, the management, without the late Frank W. Woolworth himself, but the management had seen the depression coming, had taken steps to reduce inventories, and had come through with, with a very good uh, uh, financial uh, showing. Woolworth Company, was at the bottom, was trading at 3.7 times the next year's earnings and was delivering a yield of 7 and 5.8%. Uh, the Coca-Cola Company was trading at 1.7 times 1922 earnings and was priced to deliver a dividend yield of 5.25%. A Gillette, which had sold just as many razors and blades in 1920 as it had in 1919, was at five times the forward estimate, yielding 9 1.25%. And as for RCA, Radio Corporation of America, not then revealed to be the growth stock of the decade, it was trading at exactly one times the 1923 earnings estimate. So it was, uh, it was uh, a brutal time. It was also, in my mind, um, an intriguing and, uh, and rather heartening time if, if one is heartened. This is a political judgment. If, if one is heartened uh, by the workings of individuals acting in their own interests in open markets, I, I take this to be a kind of inspiring time, as, as, as much suffering and indeed as much deprivation as there was and as, as, as much uh, very, very extreme poverty as there was. I think on net, uh, it was uh, an episode certainly worth thinking about um, uh, the Depression of 1929, 1933, and indeed the Depression that lingered and lingered, was characterized by uh, a very visible hand, this uh, Herbert Hoover, this uh, uh, hyperactive man, this philanthropist uh, par excellence, this, this truly great American, uh, felt that... Um, uh, that wage rates should not decline. And he convened conferences of important industrialists to exact from them a pledge that wage rates must not be allowed to fall. Well, if prices are falling and wage rates aren't, profit margins are compressed, and someone must go lest the corporation go into bankruptcy. So it seems to me, as you'll read, it seems to me that, uh, that one source of mass unemployment in the 30s uh, was... Uh, a, a possibly, la certainly a laudably intended, uh, but a disastrously implemented act of, uh, of uh, philanthropic governance. Um, you know, um, uh, some years ago, uh, uh, Guido Magno uh, wrote a history of medicine entitled The Healing Hand, Man and Wound in the Ancient World. It's a chronicle of the cycles of insight and ignorance concerning medical practices in ancient Mesopotamia and China and India, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. And Peter Fisher, uh, whose uh, sunlit career has included stops at the Federal Reserve and the Treasury and BlackRock and now the Tuck School at Dartmouth, uh, relates that he once heard the author, Man Manjo, uh, summarize his followings this way. Here is what the author of Wound in the Ancient World said about uh, the essence of his book. Um, it was not really until the last year of the Second World War with the widespread dissemination of penicillin that if you suffered an open flesh wound, you would have been advised to let someone touch you rather than let nature take its course. Now, um, 
in the decades uh, uh, since the short and sharp and, to be sure, um, uh, harrowing slump of 1920-21 and the dynamic recovery that followed, doctors of economics have prescribed more and heavier interventions and medications and procedures. And with successive financial pileups since the junk bond cum SNL crisis of the early 1990s, the Federal Reserve has pushed interest rates ever lower, now to zero. In Europe, indeed, some rates are lower than zero, which institutes the concept of reverse usury, which ought to please the Pope who was coming to visit us. Wholesale money printing, doing business under the clinical and not seemingly shocking term, quantitative easing. This has come to seem almost orthodox. Uh, were house prices too high in 2006 and 7? Well, uh, was our composite American balance sheet uh, overly encumbered with mortgage debt? Well, then our financial physicians prescribed, let us dampen the perhaps necessary, but not immediately necessary, decline in the prices of single-family houses by pressing mortgage interest rates down. Let us raise up consumption by lifting stock prices and real estate prices and asset prices generally. Uh, six, seven years later, America has, in fact, indeed, staged a kind of recovery, but it is, um, it is one uh, of the more feeble type. It, it, uh, what it signally seems to lack is that characteristic American dynamism. And recalling the triumph of uh, Adam Smith's invisible hand in the not-so-distant past, I suggest that we can do worse than, at least by studying how it was, that... Uh, uh, that uh, uh, if one lets nature take her economic course, uh, sometimes good things happen. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's my speech. And um, uh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, I, uh, I would love it if you have a question or two. We have um, uh, ready uh, uh, people with, with microphones kindly standing in the aisles. And before asking your question, would you please tell us your name? And, uh, and end your question with a question mark. And, uh, and, and uh, I know, and, and if you could just ask one, that would be nice too. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, um, my name is Mark Spiegel. Um, my, my question is this. Um, I, I think we'd probably both agree that the biggest problem we have is there's just still way too much debt out there. I mean, household debt is still close to historical levels. So I guess my question is, if the Fed laid off, how long would it take for, you know, how many years of belt tightening do we need to make up for a 30-year sort of debt-fueled binge that started in 1980? Well, that is the question before the House. And uh, the, the cold water purist response, and I certainly hail from the cold water school, I guess, of market economics, but the, the you know, I've, I've heard people say, and I've thought this myself from time to time, I thought, well, if they had done nothing, um, if they had uh, let even AIG fail, um, and if we had adjusted fundamentally, not uh, cosmetically, how much worse could it have been, and might it not have been a great deal better? I'm sympathetic with that idea. I also take exactly the inside of your question, which is the observation that we are a heavily encumbered society, and uh, our finances, our, our professional finances, have been manipulated into a state of extreme, or were manipulated into a state of extreme precariousness through successive federal inter interventions. Morgan Stanley and Company 
uh, between statement dates was leveraged, oh, at statement dates, sorry, at statement dates, who knows what happened between statement dates, was leveraged 40, 40 to 1 in 2006. Uh, so I don't know um, how long the clattering pieces would have fallen down the staircase of non-intervention. I think there are, a, there are a couple of, of interim stops between um, laissez-faire, pure, and um, chronic and persistent intervention. One of these stops might be to let the price mechanism at least work with respect to interest rates, at least work with respect to asset prices. The feds have their thumb on Wall Street. They have nationalized, in effect, the bond market. They have, they have used, for the first time, at least as I read financially, they used the stock market as an instrument of national policy, thereby enriching every resident of Greenwich, Connecticut, and not enriching many who live elsewhere. So you ask a simple question, I've given you a complex and not entirely satisfactory answer. So thank you. <laughs> so one over here. Yes, my name is George Shea. Um, the economist of uh, November 8th, <clears throat> It has a book review of your book, and it says, the Fed brought on the 1920-21 depression with high interest rates. Uh, then skipping ahead, the Fed relented and lowered rates in June 1921. Uh, that's the end of the quote. <clears throat> I think um, the economist gives no uh, credit to the falling wages which reduced business costs and the other inventory factors that you mentioned. And isn't this a uh, false uh, reading of your yeah. book? Yes, the, uh, uh, thank you, Mr. Shea. I... <laughs> yes, uh, uh, The Economist gave the book what, the, uh, what Damon Runyon uh, referred to as the medium hello. <laughs> um, and, uh, um, uh, there was a scholar out in, I think, UCLA named Lee Ohanian, who has written a very serious and, uh, and I think, very important paper, uh, uh, building the case that the, Great that the person who put the great in the Great Depression was, in fact, Herbert, Her Herbert Hoover by dint of his wage policy. And what is critical in 1920 and 21 was the fact that wages did fall. I mean, um, uh, the labor market, labor movement, I'm sorry, the labor movement was, was absolutely emphatically, you know, militantly against this. But because prices fell and wages fell, um, uh, there was at length a rough equilibrium and corporations finding it profitable to hire did hire and the boom was off as, uh, as, we just, as I just recounted. So it seems to me that the, the paradoxically humane approach to wages is to let them serve as, as prices, as, as, as instruments of balance and not as political. Anyway, I'm, I'm giving a speech. Yes, sir, uh, over here. Oh, nope, here. Uh, since you are uh, doing the, your interest rate observer, and you're doing this for quite some time, and since you mentioned saving and loan crisis, you might be old enough to remember end of the Carter administration when interest rates went up to 25%, mortgages were at 18%, and uh, there was a total collapse on the market. Now, uh, can you explain what transpired that the interest rate went through the roof? In, in 19... At, uh, during that time when Carter was... Uh, when, when Carter I mean, was the in... world was coming apart. I'll try, sir. Um, uh, the question has to do with the, uh, 
with the tail end of the uh, great bond bear market of 1946-81. And I think one should see this episode of almost supernaturally high interest rates in the context of, uh, of a truly titanic movement in finance. Interest rates were at their lows in 1946, and um, uh, the monetary then system then in place was called the Bretton Woods system. It was gold-based and uh, it worked for a time. Then it stopped working, um, and people began to lose confidence in the dollar. And uh, inflation took hold in a big way in the 1970s, and people began to think that uh, bond prices would always fall, interest rates would always rise. And uh, you know that so much of what happens in markets, it seems to me, is, is, is perception, is, is, is almost crowd behavior. Um, and by the time that uh, uh, this, uh, this cycle had run its course, people were calling the solemn obligations of the United States tre Treasury, they were calling them certificates of confiscation. Now, mind you, they yielded to these bonds 15% for 30 years, non-callable for 25. Uh, and now, ladies and gentlemen, you get 3%. And everyone wants them today, and no one wanted them at 15%, I can assure you. I do remember that. Yes, sir, next question. Do you disagree with Milton Friedman's interpretation of this depression? It's been suggested by Burton Malkiel that you're disagreeing with Milton Friedman's interpretation. Well, because Milton Friedman is not here. In fact, he's not anywhere except... He, he can't be here with yeah. us tonight. Right. Um, Unfortunately. I, I, I guess I do, yes. Um, uh, insofar, well, I remember that uh, Milton Friedman and Anna Schwartz in their uh, monumental history, monetary history of the United States uh, uh, pinned the blame on this, as did The Economist magazine on, on blunderings by the Fed. I, I don't know. I think the world is bigger than the Federal Reserve, and I think that the causes of the Depression had to do with the preceding boom. Uh, booms don't only precede busts to an important degree, in my opinion. They cause them. Um, don't forget that... Uh, uh, that prices have real-world consequences, not just things in a newspaper column. And, uh, and responding to rising inflationary prices, Harry Truman, Eddie Jacobson, Billy Durant, farmers unnamed, Irene DuPont, all the actors, big and small, in the American commercial and financial stage, uh, ordered their affairs in such a way as to ensure they would collapse come a change in the price level. And that change came with a, with a little tiny burst of thunder from the Tokyo silk market. Now, the Fed held interest rates up a long time, but it seems to me you could almost make the case that, that the very high interest rates at that time accelerated the adjustment from the inflationary war period to a more normal peacetime period. What strikes me so much about this episode is, 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 is the alacrity of the adjustment. You know, it was over and done with. The Great Depression was... I think the Great Depression lasted myself to 1946, because that was, you know, but, but this, I think there's something, there's something wonderful about a really quick adjustment of circumstances. Watching human beings, uh, to me, uh, respond to uh, changing times and, and, uh, and, and making the best of it. So I, I, I guess I do respectfully disagree with the great economist Milton Friedman, and I think with that I've just said this bad enough. I think it's time to get out of here. So you very Once you disagree with Thank Milton you. Friedman, it's time to. Hi, uh, Brian Nagito. 
I know that uh, in the 20s, certainly nobody could have conceived of a mechanism like uh, interest on excess reserves, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that mechanism and um, how you think it's distorting things uh, at present. Well, this is a very inside baseball question. I'll try to do justice to in, in only a minute or two. Um, the, the questioner uh, uh, mentions the, something called excess reserves and then interest on excess reserves. The backstory to this um, uh, specialized um, doohickey, to use the technical term the Federal Reserve has, the background is the aforementioned quantitative easing. The Fed has gone out into the market and bought not trillion, but trillions worth of mortgages and government securities. Um, and um, uh, it bought them with dollars that did not exist before. And it created these dollars, and then it credits the dollars to the bank accounts of the banks that sell the Fed these bonds. Are you still with me? Good. You're not. Good. Because you shouldn't be, because the whole thing is improbable. <laughs> However, there is lying in state on the Fed's balance sheet, um, upwards of $3 trillion, I think $2.5 trillion, $3 trillion, one loses count, of redundant dollars that are not yet mobilized into the banking world. They're sitting there. They're excessive beyond the legal requirements of banks to hold dollars in reserve. So what to do with these redundant dollars? Well, there is some apprehension that if they are allowed to get into the, the banking bloodstream, they will prove uh, inflationary. They, they will, in fact, excite another inflation, just as we had in the 70s, to which the earlier questioner alluded. So to keep them where they are, the Fed has undertaken to pay a a slight rate of interest to induce the banks to keep the dollars inert. Now, um, what's wrong with this, it seems to me, and what is doomed to, what is destined to be its downfall is the sheer complexity of the current arrangements. There is not just an, an interest rate on excess reserves. There is a, a reverse repurchase agreement reserve interest rate thing. <laughs> There is a federal funds rate, which is now marginalized. There, so the, the Fed has got itself into um, a kind of a, uh, of a dog's breakfast of complexity, um, which I think will not serve it well come the time, if the time ever does come, to raise interest rates. The Fed now is, uh, you know, as you perhaps have observed at your local bank branch, the banks pay you nothing. The Fed um, has, uh, has erased the institution of interest, and now it wants to bring it back, but not so fast as to alarm uh, the over-leveraged people on Wall Street. So uh, as we say in the journalism business, rots of ruck to that Federal Reserve. And uh, here we are really at the time to low. And I, I want to thank you all for listening so patiently and, uh, and thank the New York Historical Society and Louise and Dale. And it's been a delight. Mm -hmm.